up, guys? Welcome to the Just Enemies podcast. I'm Derek. I got Larry here with me. This week, we're going to continue our discussion on Church of Half-Truth, talking about spiritual warfare and the armor of God and how they're connected. But before that, let's get a word in from our sponsors. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to the Just Enemies podcast. Listen, if you like what you're hearing, if you want to continue getting this great content and you want to help support us, consider going to patreon.com slash news. You won't be sorry that you did. Thank you for listening. All right, this week we're talking about a really exciting subject. We're talking about a passage of scripture that's super popular. I mean, hey, I'm a Sunday school teacher. The armor of God makes a pretty cool poster, right? Yeah. You know, you get a suit of armor. What kid doesn't like a suit of armor? I mean, are we talking 21st century kids? I know when I was a kid, we had like an armor thing in our classroom, but 21st century kids, maybe not. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Maybe kids today don't think they're as cool as they did when I was a kid. But when I was a kid, we thought it was pretty cool. And I think it it still tends to be thought of as pretty cool. Although everybody wants to be, everybody wants to be a knight. Yeah. All the shooting things that they do nowadays. Yeah. But uh so so we've hit Ephesians six. So we're 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 closing in on the end of the book, and and we hit this discussion of spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And it's just interesting to me because I'm drawn to things that we miss the point on, I guess. Like things that we talk about and we, we, we talk about them in a way that is just like something seems to be missing. Yeah. And I feel like this really is something that, that, that there's always something missing in how we describe it. I mean, and not just because of the fact that we always put it on posters with armors from the middle ages and then connected to something that was written in the first century, like, not only is the way that we describe that armor useless and in functionality. Yeah. But it also wasn't at all what he was picturing, you know, but let's, before we really get into that, before we talk about where this stuff comes from and how Paul is not the original source of this kind of imagery, let's take a look at that passage. So Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 20 Uh, Derek, could you uh, read that for us? Yeah. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand and stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take uh, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, 
keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Yeah, and so, I mean, this kind of imagery, it's not, it's not, it's not uncommon, right, that we're at war, that there's battles going on, that, you know, we're fighting the powers and principalities. I mean, you know, we, we overcome by the blood of the lamb, according to the book of Revelation. In First Timothy, he's told to fight the good fight of faith. You know, there, there's a lot of this imagery of fighting, of war, of things like that nature. And, and this is just another example of that kind of imagery. But then he goes on to talk about this armor of God, right? And, and the interesting thing to me is that if you were to search for the original of armor of God, right, it always points to Paul. It always points to Ephesians chapter six, okay? But the thing is, is that Paul's a really, really smart guy. Paul's one of the smartest guys that ever lived, right? Mm-hmm. There is no way that Paul was not aware of what we're about to read from the book of Isaiah. Yeah. All right. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 15 through 18 says, truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlines he will render repayment. The same. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, a, a cloak of zeal, an arm, and, and, and his own arm. It's not talking about that wouldn't be talking about like a physical arm. It would be talking about a weapon, a weapon of his own that brought salvation. And two, you know, Isaiah is really good about using that word zeal, which is personally one of my favorite. I know this sounds one of my favorite words in the English language. Zeal, according to Hebrew theology was the spirit of God itself, like, like the influence, the anointing of God himself. <laughs> uh, why didn't Paul include that? That just sounds like it, the armor of God needs that, that cloak. Oh yeah. No. I, and I'm sure like, there, there was a reason that he did it, but, yeah. but it, the zeal of the Lord like that, that is so powerful. Yeah. But, but yeah, so it, it comes from this, like it, clearly it does. I mean, multiple items are here, but if we go back a little bit in Isaiah to 52, Isaiah 52, seven says how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Um, what does gospel mean? 
Good news. <laughs> Literally the same thing. I mean, here we are. We're reading like three, arguably four, and an unnamed fifth item that Paul references in Isaiah. And there's no way that Paul was not aware of this when he wrote this. Oh, yeah, no, he, he definitely, uh, according to history, Gamaliel, his teacher, was very studied on the book of Isaiah. Yeah. So there's no way Paul was not at least informed. Yeah. And, and so that brings us to a bunch of a whole bunch of questions about this. I mean, for one, why, what is Paul connecting this to Isaiah for? And, and we have to just look at, you know, the whole book of Isaiah. It, it, it gives us some clues about this. Isaiah often talks about God as a conquering warrior king. Yeah. God is mighty and powerful and he is coming and he will overtake all of his enemies and he will be victorious and his train fills the temple. And if, yes, if you it, know what a train is, a train is, it's, it's like the flowing back of their royal garment, whether it be a robe or a cloak or a cape or whatever. And every time they'd win a battle, they would sew another line on it. Yeah. And he had one so big that it filled the temple. Right. Isaiah repeatedly refers to God in this way as God is the victorious spiritual warrior king. Yeah. That overtakes everything. And Paul in this letter to the church of Ephesus the church of the half truth is telling them that now it's their turn. He's equipping them. He's equipping them to be the ones that step into this role and do these things. And he's, he's telling them this. And, and so how do we put it on? How do, what do we do with the armor of God? What is this? What is the point of all of this? You know, because I see people who are like, we're going to pray through the armor of God. And they go, say this, Lord, I pray that you shod my feet in the preparation of the gospel of peace. And you put upon me the breastplate of righteousness and give me the shield of faith. And then they hold a Bible in their hand and they swing it around like it's a lightsaber because now they have the sword of the spirit. It sounds silly, but. It sounds silly, and it is kind of silly, and and yet I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> and and yet I, I I I can say I've been that kid that was like with a Bible in my hand, like it was some sort of weird lightsaber. Like why? Like what? What is this? Right. Yeah. And the thing is, is I believe that the easiest way to understand what this really means. It's not just to understand that it's about spiritual warfare and it's about equipping the church, specifically the church of Ephesus, but really any part of the church to fight these battles and to take the spiritual authority that God has given us. Because, you know, in the Old Testament, God would directly do these things. Yeah. Right. Even when the prophets had miracles happen, a lot of times it was God taking direct action. But then in the new Testament, 
we see Jesus, you know, healing people by rubbing mud in their eye or spitting and rubbing it in their eyes or, you know, touching people or telling them. We see, you know, Peter and John lifting up the the lame man and he walked. You know, oh, we see shaking them a snake off into the fire and shaking you know. a snake off into the fire. We see them taking actions and and not that their actions were the cause of these miracles but that they were more a part of them than just bystanders, right? They weren't just watching. And so when we look at these items, we, un- we can understand based on what they are and what these things do, what Paul is trying to say, because even though Paul is using imagery from Isaiah and he's absolutely trying to tell these people that they are now, they are now the ones bestowed with that power of the great warrior king that God is. But if we understand what these items do, we can understand what Paul is saying. So, you know, loins girt about with truth, right? If you don't know what that is, we'll give you some Old Testament fact up in here. Girding your loins, it's kind of a belt, right? That's why it says belt in uh, more modern translations, because nobody knows what this is. And what they did was they would tie their robe around their legs or around their waist so that it stayed up. It's the same function as a belt. That's why it's fastened the belt of truth in the ESV. All depends if you're going KJV or ESV here, guys. So what does a belt do? Keeps up your pants. It keeps up your pants. And what happens when your pants fall down and you're fighting a war? Probably going to die probably going to die. Why? Because you're going to trip or you're going to try to pull them back up. And in doing so, you're going to get stabbed in the head, your head cut off. In doing so, someone's going to stab you. And if you trip, somebody's definitely going to stab you or trample you. Yep. Right? And so that belt, the girding of the loins, however we want to say it, with truth. Truth. So... What is it about truth that keeps us, that does this? So the reason I mentioned girding up your loins is because in ancient Hebrew battles, right, the men would gird up their loins as a sign of their readiness for action. Okay. So when you knew stuff's about to go down, you would tie up your robe and gird up your loins and you would get ready. This is Modern day equivalent of rolling up your sleeves. Yeah, it's the modern day equivalent of rolling up your sleeves, only it actually had a really functional use because you couldn't have that robe just flailing in the wind because you'd trip. So truth is what prepares us for those actions because here's the thing. If we don't have truth, It doesn't matter how many prayers we pray. It doesn't matter how many times somebody dunks us in some water in Jesus' name. It doesn't matter how many services, worship services we go to. It doesn't matter what we do. You can read the Bible a million times. And if you never accept the truth of God into your heart, it's meaningless. Yeah. That is why I believe Paul associated the belt, the girding of the loins with truth, because it spoke culturally to what these people saw as what that item did. Well, and, and two, 
when Jesus speaks of truth and uh, the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, he says, you know, the, the, the Holy Ghost will come and guide you into all truth. The, the, you know, that's when you're talking of truth, he says the truth will make you free. And again, it just goes back into what you're saying with, if you ha- don't have the truth, it doesn't matter if you're baptized, it doesn't matter if whatever. It goes back to that because if truth makes you free, if it's supposed to, if the Holy Ghost is supposed to guide you into that truth, what, is, what does it matter if you haven't got the truth at the beginning? Yeah. Well, and that, that brings up another point. It's a weird thing to start with. Uh, I mean, if I you mean, were going to list all the pieces of armor you needed in any era of military action, yeah, with sword the belt or, or the gun. girding of your loins would not be number one on the list. Yeah, you're going with sword or gun. Yeah, and, a gun, a uh, bulletproof vest or a sheet of armor, Kevlar, helmets. You know, yeah. Kevlar, like it, it, whatever era we're talking about, as far as equipment goes, belts, well, important and definitely part of the military uniform ain't going to be number one. No, you can do without a belt in modern terms, but I mean, it, it, think about like today, for instance, like let, let's just go with what we know culturally. With so much, so many doctrines out there, and you know, you have the fake news movement. You have, you have all sorts of movements out there declaring untruths, half truths, mistruths, whatever. Uh, how important is it today to have the truth about something? You know how important is it to arm yourself with truth when it comes against doctrines? If you, if you're not beginning with truth in life and in doctrine, you're going to end up in some very bad places. You're going to end up looking really stupid in a debate or you're going to end up going down into a doctrine that is false. And you know, so yes, it seems like a silly thing to lead off with the belt, but when you think about truth as as keeping you upright, not you know, yeah. just the extra layer of protection so that you don't have to you don't have to worry about that one thing happening. Yes. At the end of the day, truth guards against what could happen yes. or what might happen. Yeah. And truth is foundational without truth. None of the rest of this is going to matter. Yeah. So, and that brings us to the second thing, the breastplate of righteousness. All right. So cool stuff. And you being the history teacher, I really hope that the, the stuff I research is actually accurate. So ancient Rome armor varied by rank and position, right? However, Armor was not quite as common as I'm sure the soldiers would have wished. And so there was a common 
body armor worn by a normal soldier, a poor soldier. It was about 20 centimeters square and it was yeah. a breastplate that they wore and they called it the heart guard. Paul is speaking to a Greek audience in a Greek city in yep. Jewish terms. I was speaking to a Greek city in Greek terms from a Jewish perspective of these truths of God. And they would have understood this. They would have heard breastplate and they would have thought of this heart guard. So let's think about what this is, right? What is a heart? Biblically speaking, when the Bible talks about your heart, what is it talking about? Consciousness, soul, spirit. Yeah, emotions, desires, soul, spirit, right? God And Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, okay? He's telling us to keep our desires and our emotions pure and godly and to seek righteousness, right? Because here's the thing. The act of seeking righteousness guards your heart against unrighteousness, Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those actions guide your heart. They guard your heart and they guard your emotions and they guard your desires. Two things. So one find it very interesting that Philippians 4 and 8 leads off that way and five verses later you have Philippians 4.13 which is I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Yeah. But second of all this really goes back to the Martin Luther episode where you're talking about righteousness and godliness and guarding yourself with that breastplate of righteousness and like I said Martin Luther Martin Luther believed ungodliness was not trusting God for who he is and that grace, you know, grace's evidence and work in us would produce that righteousness. And at the end of the day, if, if we are not working effectually and we are not, we are not seeking seeking the way of righteousness and uh, i can't remember the exact quote but uh i believe i believe paul was speaking maybe in corinthians or maybe in titus but he's saying you know seek you know in the day in the day that that you want me seek me and you'll find me and I believe that's Jeremiah, but Paul is constantly saying, seek after righteousness, seek after these things, think on these things. And going back to Luther, I just keep thinking about that, that righteousness is more about putting on that breastplate. It's more about trusting in God for who he is. 
not necessarily what you do. It's about trusting yeah. God for who he is. Yes. And, yeah. and it's about seeking him in all of those things. And in doing that, you make it so much, so much less likely that you fall. I mean, if you think about the story of anybody who was doing great things of God and fell away. Where'd they go? It wasn't sudden. It yes. might have seemed sudden to the people who didn't know what was going on, but never, ever was it sudden. It's a slow fade. And that's a casting crown song. But Yeah, and so I, I really believe that this is telling them that they need to guard their hearts. They need to protect themselves from their own desires and nature. By trusting in God, by having the righteousness of God with them. Yeah, because having righteousness at the end is taking up your cross, denying yourself, living separately before God, and letting grace work its have its work in you and show. Yeah. So the next item is feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so when I think about this, right, our, our shoes are what are on our feet. And in that time period, especially, they would have been how they traveled everywhere. So he is telling them, in my mind, to order their steps by the gospel of Jesus. To make their decisions, to make their lives, to take actions based on the truth of God. That word is a lamp unto my feet. Exactly. No, and that's interesting because it, just going with shot, you know, put put on the shoes of you know whatever. But that lamp, like, why is it not a lamp to your head? Why are you not using your eyes? What do the feet do? Get you where well, you're supposed to go. Yes, but there's also a second thing that shoes do. So the difference Protect. between somebody who has shoes and some, well, th- that's the third thing shoes do, but there's a second thing other than those two things that shoes do. Somebody with, without shoes on doesn't have as good a footing. One of the reasons that you wear shoes when you're in a battle, one of the reasons that they would put boots on in a battle is so that when things push against them, they can sure. dig into the ground and stand firm. And here's the thing. The other thing that you find when people struggle in their faith and they fall away from God is that one of the things that starts fading is their ministry. And not just the actions that they take in their ministry, but the love of ministry, the being guided by that ministry and the the focus of that deciding their actions when people stop caring about what they're doing in that way, it's a bad sign. And so when we keep ourselves ready with the preparation of the gospel, when we keep ourselves ready by that, we improve our footing and we order our steps in God. For sure. Uh that's that's 
profound because I mean, <laughs> if you're, if the word is a lamp into your feet, you know, that that's showing you where to go. But the gospel, when you're rooted and grounded in the gospel, you don't see yourself and others as humans see them or as Satan sees you for what you've done or who you are, you know, whatever you see yourself as the image of God. Yeah. And it it gives you the ability to sit in a jail cell, writing a letter to a church of people that you ministered to, to asking these free people to not pray for your freedom, but pray that you have the boldness to preach to your captors in prison and be an ambassador in bonds like Paul did in this passage of Ephesians. Yeah. And I I think actually in tradition or not really tradition, but there's ducky, there's some record that they had to switch out guards because Paul would convert those guards of course he would. I mean, I, um, I just I can't imagine being in a room with Paul and not believing in Jesus. Like you either would have to believe in Jesus or you would have to so violently oppose God entirely. And that's the thing. In that world, they don't oppose that a God exists. Yeah. You know, you're you're thinking in today's terms where there's going to be people that don't exist, that don't that don't believe a God exists at all. But in that world, the spiritual forces were so strong and so devout that when someone came to you and spoke about this man who rose from the dead in this new way, this the you know they're calling it people of the way or the way. When you're hearing of this, and then you get into what it's about, and the gospel at its core makes sense, whether you believe in it or not. The gospel at its core says humans are dirty and Jesus came to cleanse us at its core. I think everyone would agree that humanity in and of itself is not that great, but the, what the gospel allows you to do. And, you know, I like that you said gives you a firm foundation, a firm footing. What the gospel allows you to do is to, is to find Wrap your head around that truth. But then the gospel is like that that leap pad. It's like that pad where you're like, okay, I've got a way to salvation. Now let's start building. You dig in, but you gotta start walking at some point. You dig in, but you you've gotta you gotta get going. You gotta either run or walk or something. You got to either turn around at some point, you know, which is repentance. You, but that's what's amazing to me because this can be flipped so many different ways where your feet can be turned around to, to, to repent. You can be digging in to stand firm and that Jesus is who he said he is. You, you can, there's so many ways to flip it. And the thing is, is in my mind, like knowing what I know about Paul and what I see in his writing, I feel like he had all of these things in his head. And he just, he just knew had a lot. And he just put it in these. I mean, I, and I'm not saying, you know, God definitely directed it, but like, man, Paul, 
Oh, so brings us to the one that I know I got, I always get the most excited about, and that's the shield of faith. So here's the thing. When we think about a shield, right? We think it's just this big piece of metal that like, you know, things hit against, right? We think of it as like not all that important. I mean, think about it. When we think in modern terms, like when I think of like fantasy video games and stuff, the hardcore awesome characters dual wield. Yep. Or they use a two-handed weapon, both of which are utter nonsense. Yeah, because you leave yourself too open. You leave yourself wide open with both of those options. And I mean, sure, you know, the two handed thing can get you some power, but in an actual fight, the other dude's going to like stab you before you actually hit him. You got to be quick. You got to be fast. Right. And so in reality, both of those things are silly and the shield is super important. If anything, the shield is literally the most important thing, because the thing is, is the shield could replace every other part of the armor in its protection. And two, if you just to, just to mention that, so you talk about dual welding, you talked about uh, two-handed weapons, which really only the most skilled and most professional could have really done that well. We're again, Paul's talking to a people in Ephesus that are lay. They're normal people. Yes, they're they're probably relatively rich because of ephesian culture and prosperity but paul's talking to an average person an average person doesn't have that ability and it just recalls the scripture to him on and highway was there called holiness that a wayfaring man though he be a fool would not err therein the that this shield of faith this way of holiness this faith of holiness that yes it can replace every part but it's for everyone. It's for yes. the highest. It's for the most basic. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. Shields have four uses in an ancient military. Okay. The first one is the obvious one. You use it to block things. Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's even what he says, you know, you use it to withstand the fiery darts. Right. And that's important. That's good. It is a primary defense, but that's the other thing is that it's mentioned as the primary defense. Your faith is the primary defense you have against attacks of the enemy. Yeah. I mean, by faith. Because all this, all the righteousness you want in your breastplate without any faith, that ain't doing you no good. It goes back to what we talked about with Martin Luther. Yeah, exactly. It's it's so the second use shields are actually offensive weapons. In yeah. ancient military, shields were used as weapons because they had to have them. They had this big heavy metal thing in their arm. What you think they're not going to hit people with them? Yeah, they're going to use it to push yeah. to hit. They're going to use it to push. They're going to use it to hit and they sharpened the edges and the size of the shield. So think Captain America. You know, we all think Captain America's shield's lame. But, like, 
the whole throwing the shield and like it stabbing into things is an actual thing. Yeah, it, that was the functional use. Yeah, it was uh, it was a normal okay. use of a shield that it was an offensive weapon. And in the same way, our faith is the greatest offensive weapon against the enemy. Our faith is what moves mountains. Our faith is what gains territory. Expressions of our faith through our testimony is what say, what converts people and shows people the gospel. Yeah, our I faith. Mean- does all of these things again it's by grace you were saved through faith yes faith is the activator of everything it, it yeah it and it doesn't even matter that you know you doesn't matter if you have a sword in your hand doesn't matter if you have a breastplate honestly without a shield in ancient battle you weren't getting very far well, yeah, I mean, think about it. That breastplate of the average soldier, the breastplate was 20 centimeters. I want you to think of a 20 centimeter spot on your chest and then think of all the vital death-giving organs that are still easily penetrated. And not to mention the suds. Like, yeah, you got your arms there, but... Yeah, I mean, everything is still wide open. It literally only protects from straight-ahead shots. Yeah. Right? So, the third function of the shield is an identifier. You would know what army, what battalion, what unit you followed because of the the crest, the the logo, the markings on your shield. The seal, yeah. Yeah, it was it's it's kind of like the flag in modern armies. Right? You well, know, we have that yeah. picture of I think it's Iwo Jima, right? Yep. Where they they got the flag up the hill and they planted it and it was this big rallying cry and it was the turning point. Right? And yep. it it's like in in logical terms, you'd think that planting this flag where people can see it is useless. Yeah. But the rallying of the people around that symbol was so important that it turned the tides. And that, that, that insignia on that shield, the faith that identifies us, can do the same thing. The last function is one that I, I think is really great, too. And it only applies really to this group, Greek and Roman time. And that is the way that the shield unified people with the people around them. The phalanx. The Greek phalanx, a formation used by all of these armies, by 300 Spartans and a few others, right? And I get the 300 is an exaggeration. There were a few thousand people with them. But is it really that much more impressive if there were 3,000 or 5,000 of these guys? They held off millions of enemy combatants because of this formation, largely. Yeah, no. they. I mean, it may not have been billion, millions, but it was definitely a few well, hundred, hundred thousand. Okay. But millions might be more. exaggerated, too. But either way, they were vastly and grossly outnumbered. Yeah, no, that the Persian army that was coming in was going to overrun them. And yeah. they bought enough time 
for some reinforcing and you know and eventually Greece wins that battle but or that war but beyond that <laughs> and by the way this phalanx that we're talking about that was oddly specific it was kind of at one point it's what held it it, it put the entire western culture western history on its shoulders oh yeah if i mean if, it was like what cannons and guns that really overtook it <laughs> yeah i mean uh, but beyond that if persia wins that war against greece and greece you know falls at that point and persia takes over the area that greece controlled there may never be a roman army because that persian army was insane there may never be uh, there may never be a Pontius Pilate. There may never be these people who were in power. The phalanx that is oddly specifically referenced in this literally put culture upon its shoulders and defended it. Yeah. And then and you the wonder. Is, yeah. And the thing is, is the theory of this is that my shield is not just my protection, but it's the protection of the people around me. They would use their shields and build them on top of each other and build an impenetrable wall. Yep. And they would choose where things came out of that wall. It's the ancient, the ancient version of the tank. Yeah. It, it, they literally, and the thing is, is when they got together on a functional level it was a tank i mean you have these dudes who spend their whole life working on this formation linking these massive shields together and as a group holding this giant plate of scale armor basically in front of them with with spears and with pointed spears out. sticking out of spear-sized holes Right. It was basically a tank. But the thing is, is that what happened was, is if one of the men fell, it was all done. Somebody else just took that spot. Yeah. And the yeah. thing is, is that it was it was powerful because it was unified. And because they were together. Yeah. You know, and, and hey, biblically, one of us put a thousand two of us ten thousand right yeah i mean that whole idea of unity and power in unity and power in being unified together is all throughout the scripture where two or three are gathered together in my name there am i in the midst so yeah we're, we're not speaking you need thousands of people we're talking two or three yeah and the thing is is that it's so true when we apply it to life when, when somebody's struggling, a good way to pick them up is to remind them of not just their own faith, but your faith. And the things that God has done and shown his faithfulness to your faith. And it's that same idea as one of you shall put a thousand to flight, two of you shall put 10,000 to flight. It's that same idea in the New Testament. Uh, yeah. With the shield, like 
you know, you, that idea of unity, that idea of gathering around something that brings you together rather than divides you for once. You never underestimate the power of unity. It, unity, you, you can break one man if you get him alone. But it's hard to break three or four people when they're together. That's why police officers, when they are interrogating or if they split up the, the assailant or the criminal or whatever, they split them up so that there's not that bond. There's not that unity. There's not that, there's not that ability to, to corroborate and bounce off each other's idea or whatever. There's once you get that separation, you, you can pit one against the other. You can, you can turn one against the other. You can find holes in the story. But if you're unified, it's really hard to break that. Yes. Just like it's really hard to break a Greek or Roman phalanx when they're unified together. Exactly. Yeah. And that brings us to the helmet of salvation. This is the one I've been waiting for. Helmets have one purpose. One purpose only to protect your head. Guard your cranium. In your head is your mind, right? Yeah. So, so the ancient connection there, because I've been waiting for this one. I was going to mention it before uh, when you were talking about the shield, but what's interesting is that, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before in these ancient battles, we have this image of people boldly and, you know, courageously on the front lines. That's bullcrap. Like, there were men there that didn't want to be there. Conscripts, people that were forced into the army, people that had, that they weren't even Roman or Greek. They just had to go do this. Slaves that were given sticks and sent in the yeah. front. So a lot of these people, knees shaken, they're defecating because they're so nervous. They're throwing up. So that helmet of salvation, I know that's like a very graphic idea, but that helmet of salvation, man, you guard your mind. You, because yeah. our enemy, he said, he says it really well here. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers of darkness and evil forces and, in, in higher places. Like, and there's another place where Paul says, casting down all imaginations that would exalt itself against the power of God. That's what that helmet does. It guards our mind. It keeps our imagination in check. It keeps it keeps us focused on the battle because we may it's it's really interesting how pre- preachers do this because they'll say in one breath, the devil doesn't have any power, and then the next breath they'll say, and I, I say preachers, I don't know why I say I'm a preacher, but then we'll say, oh, but Satan is, Satan is, as, yeah, Satan is as a roaring lion. Like you got to watch the enemy. 
let me be clear. If you don't have Jesus, you have no power over Satan. The, the only power you have over Satan is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Satan knows that Bible better than you, me, anyone on this earth. He lived it. Yeah. And. Oh, and we're going to come back to that in a second. But again, like that, our, our enemy. He's powerful. Yeah. He's, he's scary. Imagine you're that, you're that conscript, that slave, that prisoner of war that's forced to go out on, onto the battlefield facing the Persian army, facing the phalanx. Imagine you're that person. You know for a certainty you're probably breathing in the last few breaths of air that you're ever going to have. You know that you've probably, you're probably living the last few moments that you're ever going to live. And you might get lucky and die instantly, but chances are that you're going to die a horrible, excruciating death that may take you days while you rot. Yeah. So now put that into perspective and think about that helmet of salvation as a guard against, yes, our enemy is powerful, but your God is so much more powerful. And that that helmet of salvation, that that salvation, you're you were going to face that enemy, but guess who stepped in and faced it for you? Guess who stepped in and said, "I'm going to take that enemy, and I'm I'm not going to take it. I'm going to conquer it." And that helmet of salvation gives you the reassurance that God's yeah. already defeated that enemy. Well, not only does it give you reassurance, because I just want to be clear, not one word of that was in my explanation of this, but that was amazing. I knew at least one of these, you were just going to come up with something that was just going to like, right? But what is salvation? Self-saving. <laughs> the new, what I'm saying, like it's the new birth, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a new man. It's according to Romans 2, 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Salvation is literally a new mind. Yeah. Putting on and, a new. Yeah. And I, I really think that, that that is, that's part of it, is that salvation changes every way that you think. And that's why he associated that with the hell with the head specifically. That's good. Because when you put that salvation on your head, you no longer have the mind that you had before you put that salvation on. And the thing is, the thing about salvation is you can take it off. And when you take it off, that old mind, it's still there. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back, we were having a conversation with one of our friends uh, where, what was it? I believe uh, he was saying, he was talking about the Jadis Pinkett Smith situation. This has been months back at this point. But 
it just draws me back to that where he said, I would have to lay down my Holy Ghost and then pick it back up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that that's never okay. Yeah. And, and I mean, think about that in a battle situation. You're laying down your salvation. You're laying down your Holy Ghost. You're laying that down. You're literally taking that protection off your head and putting it down on the ground next to you. And standing in a battlefield with everything going around you, and you just took off all of that protection on your head. That does not sound like a good idea. I mean, it, again, our our enemy is not flesh and blood. It is rulers. It's the ruler of darkness, the powers, the principalities. Yeah, like. It, this battle is not something that you can just be like, I'm going to take my Holy ghost off for a second. No, you, you can't do that because one, you either never had it or two, you just, you just decided that salvation wasn't worth it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that brings us to the last item, the sword of the spirit, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I want to touch on that, that lightsaber Bible thing again. And, and I really liked what you said a moment ago that don't nobody know the Bible better than Satan. Yep. Here's the thing. I want to be clear. The Bible is the word of God and it's powerful as the word of God. But in this context, the word of God is not the scriptures yeah paul is not saying take the sword of the spirit which are that giant shelf of scrolls that you can't carry around with you in your hand because technology hasn't been invented to make that possible yet yeah okay that idea is wholly modern because nobody ever would have thought that was possible in the day that this was written When Paul says the word of God here, he's literally meaning the words that God speaks. He's saying that our power, our weapon, are God's literal words. But here's the thing. God's literal words, they're not just spoken by God. They're spoken by those who have been given the authority to act and speak as his ambassadors. Which would be us. Yeah. Which would be the church of Ephesus, which would be all those people. Hebrews 4.12 is the same thing. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The writer of Hebrews, Paul, is not saying that these written scrolls are these things. And those written scrolls are a part of this. But he's not just saying that because if God shows up tomorrow and he says something that's not included in the Bible and obviously is not disagreeing with the Bible, but is not there, that word is just as powerful as the words that are in this book. 
Yeah. Because it's still the word of God. The words that God spoke to create creation, whether they're exactly contained in Genesis 1 or not, are powerful whether we know exactly what they were or not. Here's the thing. God's word never, first of all, God's word never dies. And it never returns void. Yeah. These are two things that God God's word can't do. And I mean, three things, lie. But it, it, it never dies, returns void, or lies. Here's the thing. If it never dies, we see that evidenced in creation. God spoke creation to existence because his word never dies. The universe is expanding to this day. Second thing, it, it, it never... The word of God never... Uh, what was the second thing? <laughs> it never dies and it never comes back void. Uh, never comes back void. I had ADHD moment, man. Uh, never comes back void. It, classic sign of ADHD or ADD. But uh, never comes back void. Man, that's evidenced everywhere. Yeah. Like he, it goes back to that seed. Given that seed, it, it's, if it's never going to come back void, at some point that seed is planted. It's, it, yeah. someone will come along and water it. Someone and again, it's another place where the word of God is used, and it's not literally meaning a verse of Bible. When, God, yeah. when Jesus says to plant the seed that is the word of God, he's not saying to just quote a random Bible verse and walk away. He's saying to speak the word of God, to speak God's message of God's truth to them. And now for lying. We've talked about this so much on the podcast that I feel like we hammer it to death, but it's so important. Adding to and taking away from the word of God is not your stupid Bible translations. <laughs> It's literally you saying God told you something when he did not. I.e., yep. example given, or whatever your favorite abbreviation is here, the election of 2020. All these preachers and prophets coming out and saying, I, I don't care what you think, election fraud or not, if it was supposed to happen, it would have happened. And it didn't. That's adding to taking away from yeah. the word of God. And that puts you in danger of hellfire. So when you're saying the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, if you have that spirit in you, you should know God's word never, never dies, never ceases, never stops going. It also can never return void. And it also never lies. So why in the world are you carrying if you're if your sword lies to you, you're gonna be missing a lot of people. You're gonna be having a lot of trouble trying to make your way through that army and trying to survive. If your war if your your sword breaks on you and dies, you're gonna die. If yeah. your if your sword isn't hitting its target and coming and coming back void and it's not it's not hitting what it's supposed to hit. That's a you problem. 
Yeah. Because that shield might protect you and you might be able to use it as a weapon at times, but eventually the people who are attacking you and all you have is defense, they're going to figure out a way past your defense. Exactly. You got to have some offense at some point. And, you know, that if it's, if it's never hitting its target, if it's always coming back void, that's a you problem. Yep. You can be spirit filled, but not spirit led. Exactly. And, and the thing is, is even Jesus shows us Jesus tempted by Satan, right? Jesus is God. Jesus could have just said, be gone. I say so. Yeah. And there's nothing he could have done about it. I mean, he did it. I mean, like, you know, the, the man in the, the graveyard with, and he cast the demons into the pigs because they were like, we don't want to go wherever we would go otherwise. I don't even know what that means, but, you know, they didn't want to get cast out. They wanted to get cast into something that was right there. And so he did it. But Jesus with Satan is tempted and, and Jesus doesn't use his own new words. He refers back to the things that God had already stated to be true in the past. He said, it is written. And so I'm not discounting the scriptures when I say that the scriptures are not it. That the word of God is literally God's words, his message, his teachings, his everything. The Bible is powerful and it is important, but we need to have it in its right place. And and its right place is that it is God's word because it's part of it. And so it is powerful. Yeah. And that when we are tempted, when we face a battle, God's word is the thing that will get us through it. When Israel needed direction, they turned to the prophet and the prophet would come in and he would declare the word of the Lord. And that would be what they followed. And when they obeyed and they did it, they won every time. Yeah. I mean, it. every time we talk about prophets, I think about, I believe it was Nathan coming to David and giving him this story about a, a, a woman whose son was the last of her sons. He gets caught for something. I can't remember what. And he's about to be put to death and the father's name will cease from the earth. And that was a whole thing in Hebrew culture. But, and David says, there won't be a hair from his head. You know, who is this that wants to do this? He's a, you're the man. And David's like, oh. And the thing is, is that what makes David so David and a man after God's own heart is that when the word of the God, word of the Lord came from the prophet, he heard it and he, he repented, he changed. Yeah. And yeah, that sword was, what, what's a sword supposed to do? It's supposed to cut, right? Yeah. What did Jesus say that he came to do? He didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. He came to divide. He came to cut asunder and to also the very love bone. how the sword comes out of his mouth. 
in yeah. Revelation. Weird imagery when I see that, but it's super weird imagery. But like, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Like, like the thing is, is that we we miss what the imagery is because we're not thinking of it in the way that the we're not thinking of it in the poetic way that it was written and meant to be written. It's not meaning literally that a sword is coming out of his mouth. It's, it's saying word. that the weapon is literally God's words. Yeah. I mean, and that just goes to spiritual warfare because what did Jesus fight against temptation with? Yeah. For it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. For it is written, for it is written. He always said, for it was, for it is written. And I, I know that we're saying that, well, the word of God isn't just what's written. I completely agree with that. But at the same time, it's really nice to have as much static word of God that we can depend on and that is exactly. right there in our hands as we do. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and and that's why I say I'm not saying that to discount the Bible, you know, and and it just it shows us like when we look at all of this on the whole, like. Again, Paul is not just like we talked about with a uh, fivefold ministry. Paul's not giving them a bunch of offices and jobs and titles. He's giving them actions to take. Same thing here. He's telling them to be ready based in truth. He's telling them to be steady by the gospel of Jesus Christ and guided by that. He's telling them to renew their minds in salvation. He's telling them to fight using the word of God to obtain victory in God's strength. Because your weapon is the strength of your army. I mean, an army, an army with only shields is eventually going to die of starvation at best. At best. And that we protect ourselves and guide ourselves and unite together under the banner of our faith. Every single one of these things would have been understood by the reader of this letter to be actions to be taken. Yeah. And that that's the and, best and I, way. I find that just I find that amazing. And really that's the best way to describe, you know, as I know it's in the notes, but we make this so much more difficult but yet so much more simple than it is because it's, it's not just a prayer. Yeah. But it's, it's not also just this not, thing that you're like, just put the armor of God on me, Lord. It ain't that, but it's also in, it's also not, I've read a few things from like former witches and former warlocks about whatever piece of the armor of God that you don't have your, your guardian angel doesn't have either. Eh, I don't know if I believe that, but now <laughs> beyond that beyond that it's not some super secret spiritual insight that paul had either no it was it's, just coded practical language and that that's the beauty of it it's something that's so practical and the thing is is it's something that you could memorize Right. Because you have to also remember they couldn't just read these letters anytime they wanted. Yeah. But how easy is it to remember? Oh, the armor of God. 
And yeah. it gives you so many things to remember and think about just right there in that really simple thing. And, you know, too, you, you've got to think about when Paul is writing this, he's, he's, he never thinks that he's writing an epistle that's going to be put into a conglomerate of books. Yeah. He's writing his letters to edify the church, correct the church, make sure they, they're going the right way. And at the end of the day, like we've again, we we made this so much more difficult, but also so much too almost too easy. Because I like I said, I, I said these are practical things. But the problem with practical is that you gotta practice it. Mm-hmm. You gotta be disciplined with it. Yes. You can't just you can't just say, I'm going to lay my Holy Ghost down right here. And when I get done smacking the crap out of that guy, I'm going to pick it back up. That's not how that works. Yeah. I mean, imagine a, a military unit that has no discipline. You can't. They ain't going to last long. You, you can't. Like, you might get the odd battle where like in, take the American Revolution, for example. We were losing that war until the French helped us out and he had Marquis de Lafayette show up and train our army and discipline our army. We don't win that battle without the French, the French help. We don't win that war without the French because we were undisciplined, untrained. And frankly, we had a lot of deserters. We, we didn't even really win at that point. We, kind of battled until British Parliament got sick of funding the war. So we battled to a draw, really. But beyond that, if we are refusing to practice and be disciplined and, you know, take up the cross because we we like to say, well, no man can pluck him out of the hand of God except God. The only thing that's going to pluck you out of the hand of God is God. And you jumping. And you, and, and you walking out. And, you know, that the idea of eternal salvation, you know, that once saved, always saved, predestination, whatever, wherever you want to go with that. That's the problem with it. It requires no discipline, no practice. And that is such a disservice to the blood, the body, the resurrection, the martyrdom. That's such such a complete and total disrespect to the church that Jesus Christ built and what he built it upon. If you were in the art, you know, we talk about the army of God. If you were in that army of God, God doesn't have an army that's untrained, undisciplined, and unmannered. He has an army that is well-trained, disciplined, willing to fight, stands the ground to the very last. They're not swayed by false doctrine. They're not, they're not, their swords are sharpened and they can cut through anything. 
their their helmets are not are not beaten and battered their helmets are polished they're shiny they're new they're they they not only is it a new mindset but it's a confidence that god has already fit the battle we have every opportunity in this day and age to put on the whole armor of god by just simply being disciplined but that's a hard thing to ask in the 21st century why it's hard to for a rich man to find salvation yeah you know and and i think that's a good way to stop because ultimately this is about discipline this is about how to discipline your life and how to understand the actions and the things that we need to do in our life to prepare us just like the fivefold ministry is about the actions that the church takes needs to be healthy and the teachings to husbands and wives is about the actions that need to be taken in a marriage towards each other in order to have a healthy relationship and grace through faith is about the actions that we need to take in our faith in response to god's grace this whole book is about a church that had a whole bunch of truth but the half truth was very clearly when you read the book that they were lazy yeah and they weren't doing the thing they needed to do so let's not be like the church of half truth because guess what half truth is what everyone on earth has and always will have because god is truth and he is always there we need to do our part not because ultimately our part saves us but because god has given us instructions and it's our job to follow them thank you guys we will we'll talk to you next week This is why I'm oneness. Because here's the thing. I don't say that because I think anybody else is necessarily wrong or anything like that. I say it because the identity that the spirit of God puts in us is the same law that the Jews were supposed to put in front of them. And that law is simply put together by two phrases. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And thou shalt love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That is our identity. That is who we are. It is literally the, the statement of the power, authority, and airship of God. It's what makes us his heirs. It's what makes us his children. It's what makes us who we are. And that's why we need to remember it. That's why we need to teach it to our kids. That's why we need to tell them. It's it's not even because anything else is wrong, but they're missing the first half of the statement of what the identity of God in us is. We're gonna see it in Joseph's coat of many colors and in the promise that that represents and what happens to him through it. We're gonna see it in Saul 
in the promise of his kingdom and in the taking away of his kingdom through the literal removal of tzitzitz. We're going to see it in the New Testament when the woman with the issue of blood reaches out for the identity of God in the tzitzit of the prophet and doesn't realize that the very face of the man she's reaching for is literally God. And we're going to see it when we look at Paul's teachings about women's hair and how they correlate to the tzitzit that only men wore and why he taught the things he did about it and why there is power in it. It's not magical. There's a very specific reason that it represents what it does. And we're gonna talk about that over the next month. And we are so excited to bring it to you. And we hope you join us every week, Wednesday, new episode. Be with us, it's gonna be a ride.